the path doesn't have to be straight. We have enough information that we can value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome back to We Get Real AF. I'm Sue Robinson. And I'm Vanessa Alava. This is a friendly reminder to please subscribe to the show and leave a quick rating and comment wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, we want to hear from you because we have a really cool idea for an episode where we want to cover tech hacks. So please send us your favorite tech hack that you might know about that others may not know about uh, via our website, email, or social channels. Can't wait to see what you guys come up with. And also make sure you tune in next week. We are going to be speaking with Amy Hedrick of Cleanbox Technologies, and she has some amazing technology in the hygiene and health space. And today we are talking with a young woman who had passion and amazing technical skills, but very little business experience. And she was determined to start her own company. It's an inspiring example of what you can accomplish with grit and the willingness to be nimble. Yes, absolutely. This technology is super smart, and I can't wait to see the different applications for it. So very excited to uh, be joined by Catherine today. The topic of epidemics and global health has, of course, been very much at the forefront of everybody's minds lately. And today we're excited to be speaking with a woman who's using technology to help address the topic of global health. Catherine Clayton is the founder and CEO of Omniviz, a tech company that's developed a system to quickly detect waterborne pathogens with real global impact. Welcome, Catherine. Welcome to WeGraph. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. <laughs> we're excited to have you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. So I was about seven years old and my uncle, my uncle Don had full-blown AIDS and he died from this disease. And this was back before AIDS was as treatable as it is now, uh, or at least that people can sustain their livelihood. And so at seven years old, I'm seeing this man go from one of my favorite people in the world who loves to play tennis and go running and show me his garden to somebody who's stuck in bed and who's on oxygen. And it was when he left us that I understood kind of what disease was and definitely what it could do to somebody. And so at seven years old, I said that when I grew up, I was going to rid the world of disease because as a seven-year-old, that's what you're excited about. You want to change the world. And granted, it's not necessarily the most popular profession for a seven-year-old to pick. Uh, it had definitely that that sense of hope. And so uh, the years go by and I decide to do biomedical engineering because of that exact same reason. I have this passion for medicine and for helping people. And I study abroad in Thailand and I'm working in a rural village next to the border of Laos. And what I love about it is I'm going door to door and I'm learning about people and I'm learning about how just Everyday people live their everyday lives and learning about how I could engineer systems that work in households, that work in homes, that work for all types of people. And I was designing for 
real real humans. It felt so much more about people after that time rather than something more sterile and in the classroom. And so I decided to start my PhD. And when I was there, a girl in my lab came back from two months in Haiti and said, have you heard of this disease, cholera? And I'm thinking to myself, cholera? I mean, I've, I've read about it, but I don't know that much about it. And she'd said, you know, in Haiti, there was no cholera for 100 years until the earthquake. And it was brought there. And it had been creating outbreaks until a year ago. So that's almost a decade of outbreaks of this disease. And so I decided to shift my entire PhD focus and use this technology I was building to do rapid detection of cholera in water, particularly. And um, in 2017, decided to translate my research out of the lab and start to create a company out of it. So that's kind of been my path to get here so far. That's fascinating. That's mm-hmm. awesome. And just, I, I love the mind of a child too, right? right. Where it's like, there's, you know, your imagination is like the limit. Absolutely. Um, so can you explain to us how, how the Omniviz, I, I mean, app works? Yeah, sure. Uh, so what I love about it is it's a mix of software, hardware, biology, chemistry. It's all these things I love together in a system that can create impact. And so what we have is we have first the smartphone, like you mentioned, with an application on it. And that works with a hardware device that you can hold in your hand. So it's like a portable lab in the palm of your hand. And we have a test kit. Now, what you do with the test kit is you put your water into it. You put a sample of water that you want to test for cholera. And you stick it into the hardware with the phone attached, and it reads the water. It takes a bunch of images of the water and analyzes the water to be able to tell whether or not cholera is present. And it does this in about 30 minutes. And the reason why we used the smartphone is, first of all, your smartphone is so computationally advanced. It's incredible what it can do. And so it's able to do these complicated algorithms and crunch out data really rapidly. But we also created the hardware component because we wanted to do all these laboratory processes, but in an integrated and handheld manner. So somebody could go out into the field. They could go out to a water source and test right on the spot rather than taking a sample, bringing it back to a high-tech laboratory and testing there. And so after the 30 minutes is done and we get the result, it says if there's cholera or not in that water source. This can be done entirely offline. People often think smartphone and they think, oh, you need to have connectivity. And we realize that some places you just don't have that. Um, There are plenty of times I even walk around San Francisco and suddenly I don't have connectivity. (laughs) (laughs) We all know what that feels like. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, man, my call dropped. Um, But what is cool is that when we get the data, and this is all happening offline, the second somebody does get service again or they get to a Wi-Fi source, that data is immediately uploaded to a cloud-based platform so that an NGO, for example, can see where and when cholera has been detected so that they can send resources right to that outbreak. So we don't have this huge uncontrollable outbreak that we're reading about in the newspaper. Instead, they see it's at this GPS coordinate at this time. We need to send doctors to the community. We need to warn the community. We need to clean the water with chlorine or give people filters or tell them to boil their water. And so that way we're able to control the outbreak and help with that logistics standpoint too. One of the things that really struck me was how simple the solution can be 
once you identify that there is cholera in the water, right? Like you said, people can do things themselves. They can boil it. They can add a little chlorine or something like that. And so some of these major, major problems when people have technology that just alerts them to it can be solved in a pretty straightforward manner. Right. Exactly. I'd like to backtrack just a little bit and find out how you had the confidence and the drive and the organizational skills and the connections and all those things to start something that's pretty ambitious, right? Which is this this technology solution that can impact thousands, maybe millions of lives. Um, and and you're a young woman with a PhD, which is impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but you still have to, you know, s- to start a company like that sounds pretty daunting. So just sort of unpack that for us. Yeah, it always takes a village, right? It's... Uh... You can work hard, of course, and you have to believe in yourself, but it does take a village and it takes mentorship and it takes support and it takes the confidence to know that if you fall, you're not alone and that people will still love you and kind of lift you up. I came out of a PhD program with advisors who became my co-founders who believed in what I was doing. And that was a huge sense of support to see that these PhD advisors believed in my technology enough and my science enough to say, yeah, go for it. Do something about this. (laughs) (laughs) And also another thing was I started going to these pitch competitions and I started to see that people were getting it. Uh, they didn't always know why collar was was necessarily important because it had not been a problem that they grew up with, but they could see why it could be used for something else. Like at the time, Zika was really big in the news. So they could say, you know, could you do something like this with Zika? Could you do something like this with Ebola? You know, these much more uh, hot in the newspaper topics. And I started to kind of build this web or build this network of of people who believed in helping a young entrepreneur who was trying to navigate out of engineering and into the business world. What was some of the most valuable information that you learned from some of those meetings in the business aspect? Because again, as far as engineering and um, the the technical portion of it, I think that it sounds like you were pretty confident in, in what you were doing and you you had other people that are in the industry that were say, validating that. But on the other side, on the business side, that you may not have been as savvy, like what were some of the key things that you learned? Yes, exactly right. I felt confident in my technical skills, but I felt at a loss in my business skills. And there were plenty of naysayers that said to me, you know, you have your PhD, you should just find somebody who's good at business to take this over. Uh, and that that really shook me and it did shake my confidence for a little bit. But then I started to have this completely opposing thought of people that were saying, look, this is your baby, you deliver the vision and the mission, and that is your job as a CEO. And then so after that, it was people saying, well, if you don't have the business skills, go get them. And it was applying for accelerators. The first accelerator I ever did was Project Entrepreneur in New York City. And not much tech there. It was definitely a lot heavier on the business side. So it was like my boot camp. It was going to workshops on search engine optimization, going to workshops on marketing. Uh, And the other big thing that I did that really helped was I did the National Science Foundation's I-Core program, which is a program that forces you to get out of the building and talk to a hundred individuals face to face to learn about product market fit. Wow. And mm. talk a great about, idea. Yeah, it's a great idea. Talk mm. about learning 
business really fast. I hypothesize that my customer's value proposition is this. And then you start asking the questions to this customer face to face to figure out if that's really a value proposition, to figure out if this is the right revenue stream, to figure out if this is the right way to get your channels up to contact these people, if these are the key activities you needed to do, is this the right cost structure? And so it was learning fast and they challenged us that we would go up there and we would just get obliterated because they would say, you know, are you really thinking about this from a business perspective? Or do you just think the technology is super cool, which I think can be the kiss of death in a lot of cases for uh, engineers, especially because we love our tech. Were you motivated by a fear of failure? Like, I've just got to see this thing through no matter what? Or, or did you just have that one vision in your head and you were like, it's going to work? I mean, what kept you going? It's the vision. At the end of the day, it's, it was my vision that the world could be better. And the world could be better in my particular mind through working on disease and working on diagnostics and working on being proactive in health. And that still serves me every single day when it's hard or you've had a tough conversation. It's, it is always the vision. Kudos to you for, from the beginning, surrounding yourself with a team that really uplifted you and believed in you and all the great advice that you got. So tell us about how else this technology can be used. We've, we've spoken about cholera. You referenced earlier that it might be applicable to other things like Zika virus. I mean, would you have other kind of things on your radar like that, that you want to apply your technology to? What we're looking at next within the waterborne space is either typhoid or hemorrhagic E. coli, which are both seen very much around the world. Typhoid, particularly in a lot of lower resource areas, very similar to cholera, I would say they align quite a bit. And then hemorrhagic E. coli, we're even seeing in the United States getting into irrigation systems. Uh, And what we're seeing on, you know, when we hear news about spinach or lettuce having E. coli. It's, it's that kind of E. coli in the water. Uh, so that's where we're going next. But we've also done some proof of concept in the lab to even go beyond water and start looking at blood, for example. Uh, I get to work with Purdue University a lot. And one of the thesis students is looking at how to use this system for malaria, which is incredible. It's way different, but it's super interesting. Um, Another one that we've looked at as well is HIV, which is near and dear to my heart, particularly given the circumstances in my family. So it's something I'm just naturally incredibly passionate about. So we can see that the world is kind of our oyster based on how we've designed our approach and designed our product. So have you had the opportunity to go into some of these communities where your test is being used and talk to the people? So we need to still do a lot of these pilots and field tests to make sure it's absolutely perfect. But what we have done is we have done a lot of testing in Bangladesh with our partners at a cholera hospital. It's called ICDDRB. It is the world's first and largest cholera hospital in the world. We want to make sure there's good uptake in the community. So for example, We did a ton of user-centered studies around training on the device. How long does it take to train somebody? What's confusing? Um, So we saw that it took 46 minutes of training front to to back. And we're like, hey, that's pretty good for a scientific device. All right. Um, But we also had to test things like education level. Uh, 
what does it mean to use this device if you've had some high school education versus a master's degree? What does it mean to be a woman trained on this device versus a man? Are we designing this just to be toward one particular gender? That's a problem. So many things are designed that way. So how do we make sure that we're getting equal here? Um, Also, English versus non-English. We're going into plenty of places that people don't speak English or people are very culturally different. And that's so beautiful. How do we design for that? How do colors come across in different communities? How do symbols come across in different communities? What's intuitive? Um, And there's all these positive aspects that we learned and we were really excited for. But there were also things that we saw we needed to iterate that we are iterating. Um, For example, where we put the test kit was not intuitive at first. Uh, We have a little stage and it was more intuitive for people to want to stick it underneath a stage than on top of the stage. And so we said to ourselves, we didn't design that as well for the user. Thank you for the feedback. Let's come back around and let's fix that. Um, We also had some symbols on the, the case, the hardware that it just was not intuitive. To us, it was Roman numerals one, two, and three. But to somebody else, they were going, what are these lines on the device? Um, So that's been a really cool way to see that we will create an impact is because we're not just making cool technology that's robust. We're also making it completely user centric. And that's so important to include just from any type of technology to include many perspectives and many voices in the development, the design and development of it, uh, so that you're sure that the device that you end up with really will be user friendly. As far as uh, diversity and inclusion and, um, you know, male versus female, as far as how many people you have in the office, like what does that look like? Three of our four co-founders are female, and all four of us are engineers. So we're completely changing the balance of what people in their brain think an engineer looks like typically or very stereotypically. Um, And then the team, I think, because of that, that sense of leadership has become pretty diverse in that. I think we're something like 60-70% female. Uh, We also have just a huge range of backgrounds from where people are from, whether it's, you know, West Coast of the United States, Midwest, East Coast, somebody from Belgium is on our team. I guess you always hear the expression, you can't be what you can't see. And what I like to think of instead is you can be what you can see. So if we're trying to design for people all over the world, we need to reflect what that looks like. Amen. We need to be what we can see. Yes. So the thing is, is that a lot of people in global health who implement global health, they're women. A lot of medical staff, they're women. It's much more women heavy than men heavy. So we need to design for women. We need to design for somebody in Kenya. We need to design for somebody in Bangladesh. We need to be what we can see. And when we start to reflect that, more people join our team who look or come from places that are completely different. And that is also then it feeds back into the cycle. Then we create a more unique solution. Then we create a more diverse staff. Then more diversity keeps coming, which makes a more solid solution. And I think that cycle is incredibly important. And I do not ever want to break that cycle because we need to have that diversity. We need to have that inclusion. And the second that it stops, I don't think we're going to be building a good product anymore, to be frank. 
You mentioned you mentioned the word beautiful when talking about the different cultures that you're working with and um, communities that you're a part of, and what you just described is in its in and of itself beautiful. Hey everybody, Sam McLean here from Inphase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening. What are some of the lessons that you have learned about being a leader since you have this diverse team? <laughs> I think one thing is that you really have to make sure that everybody in the room is being listened to, meaning that you're always going to have the same people speaking up. There are some people who are always going to be the loudest in the room, and that's fine. But you, also need to be cognizant of that. You need to go and talk to the ones who are quieter. You need to reach out yourself as a leader and say, hey, I didn't hear that much from you in the meeting. Like even if maybe they're shy, maybe they like one-on-ones. I'm actually a huge introvert. I love one-on-one. I'm not going to always be allowed at the meeting. So I've seen that in others. So how do you go to others and say, I love your opinion too. Please tell me your honest opinion and inviting that. Um, how do you make feel people feel comfortable to say things that maybe you don't want to hear. Um, and you have to make sure that you're, you're inviting that because if you don't, the team falls apart. If you didn't have that feedback, if you didn't have somebody from your team that felt comfortable enough to say that, um, you're going to get it somewhere else when it's already left the company. And it's so much easier to control when, when you're in the company, because that way you can have that wonderful group of diverse people talk about it and say, how can we make it better? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that's, that's just been a really, it's been a really important part of, of leadership. And it's, it's, it is, it's hard sometimes when people are saying, you know, uh, this is awful. <laughs> but I think, and that's the one thing we include, I have a one-on-one meeting with everybody on the team so far, because we're not too big yet that I can still do that. And one of the questions I always ask is, what is not going well and what needs improvement? And I invite them to say, you know, it could be about me. It could be about yourself. It could be about the company. It could be about so many things, but it's inviting that feedback rather than trying to, to sweep it under the rug. I've got a question for you. Um, I, I saw something um, before we started this interview and again, just very relevant because of what we're all experienced right now with uh, COVID-19. Um, your company has pivoted uh, into making um, masks, 3D printed masks. So tell us about that and um, where those masks are going and um, how you guys pivoted so quickly to create something like that for our um, healthcare workers in need. All right. So first of all, I definitely have to credit my team members, Jordan Florian. He's our global health engineer and Michelle Florian, who is our finance and grants manager. Woo-hoo, they, Jordan and Michelle. Yeah, go Jordan and Michelle. <laughs> exactly. Yay, shout out. Um, it was a Sunday and they suddenly FaceTime me and I'm like, okay, what's going on? They're FaceTime me on a Sunday. This is never great. Um, <laughs> and I, I answer and they're like, okay. So they have a lot of family members who are nurses or healthcare workers. And they said, so, you know, our aunt or whatever asked us about making a face mask and we wanted to show you the face mask and get your thoughts. And at the time, I didn't think this was going to be an omnibus thing at all. I was just like, cool. Um, and I looked at it and I said, this is, I mean, I hate to put the phrase out, but this is badass. Like, this is cool. Um, and 
my very first reaction was, so how are you going to design this so that it fits all types of faces? And they kind of looked at me and I said, we have to make sure it fits all types of faces. Everybody has a different face. You know, every, some people have different shaped noses or cheeks or chins. How are you going to include for that? And they said, we'll call you back. And they hung <laughs> up and they redesigned it and they called me back and they're like, okay. And I said, all right, how do you know it's going to work? You know, thinking that user-centered design. And then they're like, okay, we'll call you back in two hours. And they <laughs> printed one because uh, Jordan loves 3D printing and he printed one and he put one on his face and then he put one on Michelle's face and they have, you know, very different facial structure. And he's like, it fits. And I'm like, okay. So I said, you know, you can keep this independently. You can put this through Omniviz. You tell me what you want because you guys did this. I just was the one that said, make it more ergonomic. Hey, um, and again, they- kudos to you for even giving them that option. Like you are awesome. Like you're awesome. <laughs> um, and then they just, and I, they just said, you know, we would like to put it through Omniviz because we think that we can get more out there, more reach um, than we can on our own. And I said, okay, but I want you guys to get credit. That was another fun thing is that some parents wanted it for their kids. And I said, okay, I mean, obviously reshape the face, the, the mask to fit their face. But I, what I got really excited about is I was like, look, they're kids. Wearing a mask right now sucks. COVID sucks. How are you going to make this fun for kids? And so my suggestion was, asking what their favorite animal was or their favorite character was and so they would 3d print that character on the mask and then we would send like stickers to decorate their mask with because why wouldn't a kid want a custom personalized cool mask if they want if they love turtles why wouldn't we just put a turtle on the mask it's not that difficult for us to do absolutely i love the creativity (laughs) in that that's fantastic yeah and what i love about jordan and michelle caring so much about this is that we are a diagnostic company, first and foremost. That is our vision. That is what we do. But when they came to me and they had this idea for a mask, it kind of showed that they still were following the spirit of the company in that prevention is key to stop outbreaks. And it's challenges that spark the greatest creativity and the greatest nimbleness of thought. And um, that's that's where new technologies are very often born from. The work that you're doing is very admirable and it seems like you're such a wonderful leader. Goodness. <laughs> I'd love to move on to the lightning round. Right. Okay. <laughs> First question, finish this sentence. Women are? Women are experiencing an interesting part of history right now where we're able to start changing the narrative and discussion of what we can be. All right. What are three pieces of advice you'd give your younger self? And I know you're very young. (laughs) If you were talking to your two-year-old self. That's right. (laughs) Somebody asked me this recently, actually. So it's it's timely. Um, One is ask for forgiveness, not for permission. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Huge believer of that. Yeah. 100%. Yep. Second is everyone's going to tell them, everyone's going to tell you why you can't do it. And your job is to have the conviction to know why it can be done. Awesome. And then finally is it's absolutely okay if you change your passion or your interest over time. There's no such thing as the right time, the right age, the right moment, because you don't need to be the college dropout that does this. And you don't need to be somebody with 20 years of experience. Did that happen to you? Did you did you ever have a pivot? Because it sounds like you've really been 
focused for a long time. Uh, I mean, of course, in between, I got disheartened or thought, yeah, maybe I won't do this. Um, and so I think that's one thing. And I think the other is, you know, uh, you see these these arbitrary awards to be a certain age to get something. Yeah, or yeah. you hear like, oh, this college dropout has this like multi-million billion dollar company or oh you don't have the experience you need to be you you need to have done this for 20 years and so that's why I kind of just want to tell everybody it's okay it's okay to not always know it's okay to change your mind and it's okay if you don't fit some preconceived notion of what age or moment you need to do this <laughs> I believe that 100% and I love that you said that yes absolutely actually I have to do it Sue so like forgive me later um so <laughs> we actually are friends with Esri Devora, who has the amazing women in tech uh podcast and um this this woman explained to her a new word that I learned mm. it's called pronoia Pronoia is the the thought that the universe is conspiring in your favor and everything happens when it's supposed to happen for you. So yeah, for sure. What you said, as far as, you know, having to follow a timeline or if you change your mind or whatever someone says, like it's all noise. <laughs> yeah, it's all noise. And a lot of times it's noise that we put in our own brains. On to the next question. What is your current favorite application of tech for good? I'm going to have to give the uh, not specific answer here, but I did a incubator for social impact when I, about last year in Washington, D.C. It's called Halcyon. And my cohort had several really good applications of tech for good. One was box power, which makes these uh, shipping containers with solar panel grids that can power communities. Um, which I think is incredible. Um, and then there's one called Loro, which in Spanish, uh, when translated to English, means parrot. And what they do is for those who are, uh, they have things like ALS, or they can't communicate with the world, basically. Um, they outfit these wheelchairs to have things like laser pointers to point in the direction that somebody is looking or wanting to point at something. It's able to talk for them. It's able to share information to the world when maybe they physically can't do it for themselves. And I think that that's just beautiful to create this communication tool. Oh, wow. Absolutely. I'm telling you, we learn about yeah. something so <laughs> amazingly new every time we have conversations <laughs> with our guests. I love it. All of, all of our girls are so great. I love it. <laughs> all right. So what issue do you most hope technology will help resolve in the future? I don't think tech on its own is going to solve uh, something per se. I think it's any tech that also helps with behavior change. That's going to be what's essential to resolve in the future is tech that integrates behavior change. Okay. Um, what inspires you? Well, I think first my team, I don't know if this has come across yet in the conversation. <laughs> I love them. They are just incredible. They uplift me yesterday morning when I was still half asleep. One of my team members zoomed me to have a dance party. Like that is so inspiring. <laughs> um, I think the second thing is the resilience of my generation, meaning that when I was ending college was it was close to 2008. And that's when the market completely just dropped. And right now we're experiencing it again. So the fact that in a decade we've experienced it twice as adults is incredible. Um, and so that's resilience. That's really inspiring to me that 
we're moving forward. <laughs> and then the next and final thing is the generation below me, Gen Zs. I just think they're an incredible generation. I think that they are, they're just so woke. They just get mm -hmm. it. What do you want to learn more about? One of them would be, I think, just political economy, because I think synthesizing that knowledge with technology and science and all of that, you could create something amazing. You could create real societal change, in my opinion. Uh, describe the future in one word. Hopeful. All right. Last one. Blank like a girl. Strong like a girl. Strong Yay. like a girl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you, I mean, you certainly walked the walk, so that's a great one to finish on. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Where can people find you online? They can go to our website, which is omnivistech.com. Um, and they can also just find our socials, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. It's all omnivistech. So same all across. You can find us. So that'd be a great way to get in contact with us and follow our story and our journey. We, we want to hear from you too. Thank you so much uh, for everything that you're doing to help make the world a healthier place and for inspiring women and for your time with us today. Yes. Thanks, lady. Yes. Thank you for asking all the awesome questions. It was so fun. <laughs> Hi everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.wegetrealaf.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.